Over the last couple of weeks, we've been considering what the church is. Or perhaps said more accurately, we've been considering what it, mean, what it ought to mean and feel like to be a member of the church, to partake in that beloved community of Jesus. And so to begin this exploration together, we started at the source. We listened to Jesus as he prayed to his father about what he desired this community of his to become. He prayed that we might be one, even as he is one with the father. He sought that in his absence from his disciples, that they might learn to be present to one another. He prayed that his joy might be made complete in them that they might also be united to God and be a sign of God's loving presence to one another and to the world. We considered how Jesus might still be praying that we would evermore be one with each other and one with him. Then last week, we looked at the very first image of the church which is offered to us, one where people worship together and they spend time together eating and praying, which we call fellowship, and they care for one another. It appears that Jesus' prayer for this community has been answered, because despite all the many differences of those people who first heard the message and believed in the way of Jesus, they are being Christ to each other. And the impact of that is being felt far beyond just them, but in fact, it says that they had favor with all the people. And we were honest because we said that that hasn't often been our experience of the church, of Christian community, but that we desired that it would be. And that if we do desire that, that the change should begin with us. And I encouraged you to let others get to know you by daring to be the first one to be vulnerable to be open, to share. And that in doing that, you would in fact be welcoming and inviting others to do the same, to be vulnerable with you and open, to let you know them and care for them deeply. Awkward, after all, must be better than nothing. So we've heard about the importance of our presence to each other, the foundational practices of worship and fellowship and care. And now we come to the final topic in this series, which undergirds all the rest, the crucial component of being the beloved community together, our need to love one another. To help us understand what it means to love one another in the church, we turn to the pastoral letter that I think goes to the greatest lengths to try to help us understand what this means, the letter of 1 John. And we're just going to walk through what we heard read together. John begins by saying that this isn't some new instruction. This is the message you heard from the beginning. Love is the highest virtue of the church. It is the supreme call of the Christian life. And love of God and love of neighbor are bound together as the greatest commandments. Love has been the signpost and the way marker of God's people since the very beginning. And in Jesus, it is seen most plainly. For those of us who have received the message of Jesus, the good news of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we have received the message of love. This is the message that we too have received from the beginning. 
But there's also another story that's quite near to the beginning, which John points back to. Shortly after the love of God in creation and in the garden, there was a message of hatred and murder. As brothers became enemies and Cain took the life of his brother Abel, brothers where jealousy took root and where a world without Abel seemed preferable to one where he could be known or understood. As soon as humanity turns from God, humanity also begins to turn from one another. And it is only in a return to God's first and better story of love that this alternate story of hatred can actually be undone. Until Jesus returns and sets everything right, that story remains. It remains active and prevalent in our world. The ground continues to cry out for the blood of Abel and the blood of so many others who have been hurt and killed because of hatred. And so John says it should be no surprise that the world hates the church. The world continues to live in this story of Cain and Abel, a story which we have ourselves all inhabited at times. But thanks be to God, this is the message we have received from the beginning, that we should love one another. Death and decay, they've had their way with this world. Hatred and murder, they've formed in the human heart. But we have passed from death to life because we love one another. It is not our act of love which moves us from death to life, but it is the presence of love in the Christian community which is the indicator of God's life among us. And without that sign of God's presence, without our ability to love one another, we remain in death. John takes it a step further, maybe a step too far for many of us, as he says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life in them. Hatred, it desires that something or someone which God created would not exist instead of celebrating the goodness of the creation in them. It desires the undoing of another instead of desiring that God's good purposes would be made complete in them. John is taking from a very familiar teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says that, you know what? Just not killing people, that's not enough. That's not a very high bar. You can't just not kill people. Rather, Jesus says that judgment comes on all those who hold anger against a brother or sister. And John sees that just a little bit further down, Jesus in fact says that one who lusts for another person has committed adultery in their heart. And he takes these two ideas and he brings them together. And John notes that the same must be true of hatred. That the one who hates has committed murder in their hearts already because they desire the destruction and non-existence of another. And whether the hand has done it, the heart has desired it, and it is evil. And so we've heard this news from the beginning, that we must love one another. And we probably wonder if we should love one another, 
what does that love look like? What does that mean? This word is a word that sort of saturates our culture, love. What do we mean by it? There are a lot of things that we call love. And the New Testament has a number of different Greek words which it uses for love. And John in this passage is consistently using one word as he writes, the word agape, which means divine love. It's apart from earthly love. This is the kind of love which we ought to offer to one another. But even this might not be clear to us because what does divine love mean, especially for us who are people, to offer it to other people? John's answer is deceptively simple. Look to Jesus. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. You want to know what divine love looks like? Look to Jesus. Jesus, who though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is what divine love is that he laid down his life for us. Christ laying down his life for us, though, it was more than just his death. Jesus laid aside his life when he died. Yes, that's true. But just as importantly, he laid aside his life as he lived as well. He laid aside the glory of heaven for our sakes. He laid aside the comfort of being on the right side of the religious leaders by healing on the Sabbath and the comfort of the approval of the people by dining with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus laid himself aside as he touched lepers and spoke with women who everybody else knew to stay away from. And in all of these things, Jesus understood our needs and he met them. Jesus understood our need for community, and he came to be God with us. Jesus understood the leper's need to be touched, and he touched him. Jesus knew the woman's need to be forgiven, and he forgave her before he offered her any other words. He understands our need to have a purpose in our lives, value in our work, a way to the Father. And in every invitation he offered, in every step that he took, and yes, ultimately in every stripe that he bore, he was seeking to meet our needs. Are we trying to meet each other's needs in the ways that we love? Or are we just going around doing things that we think ought to be received as love? The 19th century Scottish theologian James Denny once gave an example of the problem with some of how we love each other. He wrote, If I were sitting on the end of a pier on a summer day, enjoying the sunshine and the air, and someone came along and jumped into the water and got drowned to prove his love for me, I should find it quite unintelligible. I might be much in need of love, but an act in no rational relation to any of my necessities could not prove it. But if I had fallen over the pier and were drowning, 
And someone sprang into the water and at the cost of making my peril his own, saved me from death. Then I should say, greater love hath no man than this. I should say it intelligibly because there would be an intelligent relation between the sacrifice which love made and the necessity from which it redeemed. I don't think many of us imagine ourselves running off of peers to prove our love for others. But I fear that we may well be, or else we might think that that and only that is what is required of us. John says, after all, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But look what follows. If anyone has material possessions and sees a sibling in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? We can only die for somebody once, but we can live for others every moment of every day, and this is the call of Christ. Did you get that? We can only die for somebody once, but we can live for others every moment of every day, and this is the call of Christ. This is divine love, that we should live for one another, and only should it be necessary should we finally accept that we might perhaps need to die for one another? Not only might we be caught up thinking that death is uniquely the act of love which Jesus calls us to, we might also think that we're loving each other quite well, when in fact the actions of love which we show to each other are not the actions of love which actually meet the other's needs. Note in that quote that he admits when he's sitting on the pier, that he may well need love. Just because he's not drowning doesn't mean he doesn't need somebody to love him. Do our actions of love make sense for the people who we're trying to love? Too often, I think our actions are really just acts of love that we desire we would receive. We try to meet the needs that we have for others when we find that they're unmet for ourselves when in truth the needs that they feel are likely to be entirely apart from our own. I wonder, can we look beyond our own needs to see the needs of others, to love them enough to set aside our life and live for them, and to trust that Jesus continues to live for us as well, and that he may in fact be calling his body, the church, to care for and to love you just as much as he is calling you to love and to care for the church. See, this is the thing about divine love. It's far more concerned about us than about itself. It is not envious. It is not boastful. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Divine love is about loving us first and foremost. It's who God is. It's what God does. It's why we love God too. As John will later say, we love because God first loved us. 
But if this is the love that we're called to exhibit toward one another, a love of actions and truth, a love which sets aside our own lives for the lives of others, a love which displays Christ in us and willingly sees him in others, then honestly, who can measure up? How can any of us measure up? We have all at times been jealous of another who does good. We have felt the hatred of Cain in our hearts. We have all withheld material possession from the need of another because of the desire that we have for it ourselves. We have all lacked pity, all loved selfishly, and our hearts condemn us. Perhaps you've felt that condemnation as I've been speaking, and please don't think it comes from me. I've got a lot of this to work on for myself. That is the response of our hearts to knowing that we have fallen short of this high calling, to love as God loves, to be a people of love even as God is love. So if that's not who we are, if that's not us, if our hearts condemn us, then we may ask, is eternal life in us? Yes, our hearts condemn us. But John offers us reassurance for those days when we know that we've fallen short of being that beloved community of Christ. He writes, God is greater than our hearts. In God's great mercy, God knows everything. And God sees even our feeble and faltering attempts at loving one another as a true allegiance to him, to his body, the church, and to his kingdom. There is no condemnation and no fear in God's love. So then, dear friends, John says, literally he writes, beloved, beloved of God, beloved of the church, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Still, John is using that word agape for divine love. John is not saying that everyone who loves in every form is born of God. Indeed, that would contradict his earlier claim that this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. It is those who love with divine, selfless love, love that is only made possible because of Jesus who are born of God who truly know God. But we also know that all love comes from God, and Christians by no means have some monopoly on love. I'm sure most of us know and have experienced real deep love, affection, value, and worth outside of the Christian community. Maybe we've struggled to find it most inside of the church. All people are made in the image of God, and God is love, John reminds us. But that image is marred. And the story which John reminded us of at the beginning, that of Cain and Abel, Abel tells us that our capacity to love even those who by earthly measures we really ought to be able to love is strained and broken and in need of repair. We need God's love to be revealed to us in order for us to participate in it fully. And God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. 
Not only do we live through him, but we are made able to love perfectly through him, even as he loves perfectly. We who are the beloved now join in the work of the one who first loved us. Love really is the most fundamental and the most challenging call of the beloved community. Because to love one another is in fact to practice being like Jesus. We are Jesus in this world, the text said. And to love one another is also to practice loving God. God whose image shines in each of our faces. Without this truth of love, we cannot love God. If we're not able to love one another, we who have been brought so near to each other by Jesus, who have been loved so lavishly and are now called to join in that love, if hatred still stirs in our hearts despite all the ways that we can see God's goodness pouring out from one another, how then could we possibly love God who remains hidden from our sight? Beloved of God, we love because he first loved us. And he has called us to be beloved not only to him, but to one another. Beloved, let us love one another, not in words or speech, but in truth and action. Let us begin to know one another well enough to lay aside our lives to offer love which is uniquely needed by each one among us. And let us allow ourselves to be known such that others may offer to us God's love in the way that we've been longing for. Quite simply, the commandment we have from God is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Therefore, let us love one another. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? God of love, we are grateful. We are grateful that this message is the message we've received from the beginning, that we ought to love one another. And yet we're mindful of the alternative story, the other option that entered the world with sin and that so many still operate out of, that we ourselves still operate out of at times. The option to hate, to desire destruction rather than reconciliation, to seek to love only in the ways that are convenient for us, only the ways that we like to show our love, and not to live for the sake of each other, not to be your hands and feet to your church and to the world. And our hearts do condemn us. And so knowing that you are greater than our hearts, we ask that you would speak words of peace to us, that you would free us from all condemnation and fear, that we would find the goodness of your love for us first, and that from that, we would be able to love because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to leave time for you to hear how God's Spirit might be speaking to you about this call to be the beloved community 
And so a few questions to reflect on, to pray about, to journal about. The first is, when is the last time that you laid aside your life to choose in that moment to live for the sake of another person in the church? And then secondly, are there ways that you are trying to show your love which do not meet the actual needs of those who you're called to love? How might you love them in a way that they can actually receive? And finally, an invitation to pray that God would help you to grow in love in the church, that you might feel the love of God through the love of God's people as well. We'll leave a couple of minutes for you to reflect. Good morning. We are not.